Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. I don't know. I'm, I tend to be skittish around uh, large crowds of people, but in light of all of the, uh, I guess you could say, hanging out in my own parade, it's sure good to see you. I've been asked to uh, speak on God's plan for marriage, and so we'll be looking at it in a, in a fairly broad scope this morning. The, uh, the scripture, one of the scriptures that was delivered to me as a consideration, I'd like to begin with reading it. This is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter, uh, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know, at the end, we have a threefold cord, and uh, it made me think the other two are very easy. You can identify a husband and wife. Two are one, and there's, there are a multitude of benefits in this arrangement, but the threefold cord. This has to be God. This has to be our creator in the mix. Because he is the one who designed it. And it's a part of his everlasting purpose that marriage came into existence. I'm hopeful that with the material I have uh, prepared that it will be good to strengthen the foundation of our faith concerning marriage. God's purpose for us in marriage. Its durability. Its capacity to bring about good not only for ourselves, but for the community around us, and ultimately in a broader sense to the nation, even to the world. Because this is something for our good that God has given. Within the scope of this lesson, there are a number of points that I hope to address. Number one, it's established by God. There is a framework that is made by God for its structure or its, its place. There are benefits. There is unity and permanency within this framework. We have examples from the Bible of, of good marriages. And uh, we want to talk also about deviations from this. The things where mankind has gone astray and, and done according to his own will and according to wayward lusts rather than desire that's directed in a godly fashion. And then perspectives on being single. Finally, uh, we'll hope to wrap it up after this with some kind of a conclusion. But uh, anyway, this is what, we're, what I endeavor to pursue. Um, we want to consider, first of all, a passage from the book of Genesis, the second chapter, verses 18 through 24. In the second chapter, we see a, I guess you could say, a magnification of what occurred on the sixth day with the creation of man. And it gives us insight and detail that the first chapter doesn't provide. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And what, whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So God gave names or Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, with this reading in mind, the question comes to my mind, what is it? What is this marriage? And first of all, we see the idea of, of a joining together. That the woman was taken from man, but the purpose of it was for them to be joined together to become one flesh. They shall become one flesh and they stand 
as a commitment before God and man. Now at this time, of course, it was just Adam and Eve. But in the process of time, this commitment, this God-given arrangement, and the reason I call it a commitment is because God established the commitment. You get a sense that when Adam was formed, when he was made, and that the woman was taken from him, that it was God who did the arranging, and that Adam was just compliant in this. He was absolutely innocent. In them both, there was no sin. And so the arrangement, the commitment, everything was joined together willingly by God. There was a willing submission without any tension, without any uh, type of rebellion, because that type of thing didn't exist in man at that time. But yet, the reality of it, the commitment of it, the two shall be made one, is established by God. And uh, this idea of, of establishing a commitment, it brings to mind what, what is it that causes this to occur? How do we differentiate between <clears throat> this commitment and fornication, between uh, a man and woman who just choose to live together without making a commitment? And uh, how, how do we see the difference in this? Well, number one, we understand that, uh, that marriage is honorable in all. This tells us, the scripture tells us this in the book of uh, Hebrews in the 13th chapter. This shows us that even among all people, outside of people who uh, think about God, many people have their own notions as to who God is or if there is even a God, but yet there seems to be this common thread in our flesh, in the humanity, that there is a difference between a life bond commitment between a man and a woman and just hanging out together as if you were married but without any, without any promises made. People can recognize, oh, they're, they're living together, significant other, that type of a thing, as, as contrasted with, oh, they're married. Well, what constitutes that marriage? Well, it, it must be taken from the fact that something is done in order to establish a communication that's above board, that we are committed together for life. Um, in, the, in the book of um, Genesis, the 24th chapter, uh, verses 62 through 67, we see something with regard to Isaac, and it doesn't deal much with the ceremony, but it, it shows something that was recognized by all. Uh, here it says, Isaac came from the way of Beer Lehi Roi, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to uh, meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked there. The camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and she saw Isaac dismounted from her camel. For she said to her servant, Who is this man walking, or to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. <clears throat> then Isaac brought her into his uh, mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Now this, this statement, he took her into his mother's tent. To me, that's, that's a significant kind of a thing. It must have been something that in, in the minds of people who lived around there, who witnessed this, they knew that this was something that was honorable. This wasn't something done down in the creek bed or done away from other eyes. It wasn't uh, something that was sneaky. It was something that was open and above board. Now, the Bible says nothing about any kind of, of a ceremony. When I use the word ceremony, I'm thinking of, of something where you have, uh, maybe there's some decorations and maybe there's some sort of celebration. Maybe some symbolic things occur like we do, you know, with our candles and the sharing of the rings and all of these types of things. The Bible really doesn't say much about that. Those things are, are what we do. It's kind of like we, we, we put some decorations on the cake, that kind of a thing. That's for us. But the, the real thing that occurs in any marriage is the promise, the commitment, something that's made open and above so that all know these are committed together. The children that come forth from this commitment are the children of this family, of this mother and father. These are legitimate children. These are children that come from something that is sanctified. Now, the world wouldn't think in terms of sanctification or anything like this, but yet the world still does recognize the difference between legitimate children and illegitimate children. And I do not say this to condemn or to belittle those who, who have been brought into the world this way. 
Everyone has a soul. Everyone has the capacity to give their life to God. Everyone is born into this world in a condition of innocence. So this has nothing to do with those who are born, but it does have to do with the kind of, uh, I guess you could say, framework that they were born into. And it is for us, and I'm sure we're all here for the reason that we do believe in this God-given framework of marriage. It's something that God has given. So the essence is the promise, or the essence is something that everybody understands. A commitment has been made. We probably have been to a number of ceremonies throughout our days, and we've seen varying degrees, wonderful celebrations, and these, these are all wonderful. No problem there at all. But there is a problem when the celebration becomes more important than the commitment that's made. That's where the real issue is. If it's just the celebration, you know, get a candle, light it, and blow it out, and go home. But if it's, but if it's something dear to God, that's memorable. That's something that we cherish. A most beautiful wedding was one in which you just had a, a husband and a wife, or a bride and groom, did not have much in the way of money, did not have the capacity to have a nice celebration. They just simply met in the park at the dusk of evening, and uh, they had, a, I think, a forsythia bush behind them, and that was it. Their family was there, and they made their promises. It was just essentially real. And this is what we have, no matter what kind of celebration. But we do celebrate, because it is a time of happiness, and sometimes we can have wonderful celebrations. I'd like to consider this passage in the book of Song of Saul, uh, Solomon, or Song of Songs. Uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. Consider this. Here is the Shulamite speaking. Who is, this, who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant powders? Behold, it is Solomon's couch with sixty valiant men around it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, each being an expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. Of the wood of, Solomon, of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palaquin. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. You can almost see these, these young ladies working on the interior and everyone is excited, everyone is happy, they're filled with joy at the prospect of Solomon's marriage. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. And of course, Solomon's celebration was probably very, very magnificent. But nevertheless, it, it goes to show that the time of, of, uh, of joining together as a man and woman is it is a happy time. It's something that's a beautiful moment. It's something that, that stands in honor before God and man. It's a time of, of great rejoicing. Whether it's very simple, a poor couple standing under a tree making their promises in front of other people, or if it's something like Solomon's wedding with all the regalia and the, I guess you could say, the wealth that was showered on that celebration, still it finally comes down to what really is done, the promise that is made, the thing that is said, or the thing that is done. I'm not sure that all weddings necessarily even have necessarily have words, but there has to be some, some communication, something that's laid out so that everybody understands this is not fornication. This is not convenience sleeping. This is a life commitment. In the... Um, time of Jesus, we see the wedding feast at Cana, and it was evidently a very wonderful feast. A lot of money was laid out. People took this thing to be a wonderful occasion. In the book of Matthew, the 22nd chapter, I'd like to look at uh, verses uh, 1 through 4. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to those who were invited to the wedding. Here again, this, this parable used to show that, that the wedding was a very, very important thing. And of course, he's using this to describe the kingdom of heaven and how some people were negligent in, in wanting to come to the wedding. But the wedding feast was very, very important, a very wonderful time. So what is the quality of this thing that, that we, we call marriage? Well, I'd like to go back again to Genesis and the, uh, the first chapter, 
Here we have this concluding statement in verse 31. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. He said everything was very good. It dawned on me a while back that as God said this, we're not dealing with someone who is, who is linear like we are, that just takes uh, time from moment to moment. Like I might make something or you might make something and go, oh, that's just the way I wanted it. God is from everlasting to everlasting. And of course, his vision was beyond that day. His vision was to the full creation of who we are made to be. To be raised up as the children of God. To have immortal bodies, bodies that are fitly prepared to behold our living Father and to walk with Him. And to walk with the Word of God who is now made flesh and who has dwelt among us but now has ascended as one of us. All of this God had in mind from the very beginning. And He looked upon that day when He created this world, this universe, including the joining together of the man and woman. And He said, It is very good. In Ephesians, the third chapter, verses 3 through 11, To me who am least than the, uh, less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. In other words, even the angelic world has investment in this. They have interest in this because it all affects what God is producing. Why do I say this? Because it says it's, all of this is according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The eternal purpose of God. And what does it start off with as far as humanity is concerned, as far as our lives are concerned? It starts off with Adam and Eve. It starts off with the first marriage. So marriage is fundamental to, to God's eternal purpose and plan. Now, that being said, marriage is for this world. It is not in and of itself an eternal thing. It serves an eternal purpose. Just like the law of Moses served an eternal purpose by providing, a, a, I guess you could say, a form or, or a shell for the new covenant to be poured into, it served a purpose. But that form, that shell, that mold is removed. It's no longer needed. Here we have this world, our flesh, the continuation of mankind, and the eternal purpose of God is invested in us that we might dwell with Him forever. But this thing that keeps humanity rolling forward, marriage, it's for this world. It's not for the world to come. In the beginning, the Lord declared it this way, the two shall be one flesh. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The two shall be one flesh. That's for this world. Procreation is for this world. Here in um, the uh, 24th, uh, excuse me, the uh, 13th chapter of Hebrews, again in in verse 4, marriages honorable, honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. To the uh, Sadducees who are trying to, to trick Jesus, trying to catch Jesus in his words. And they use the illustration of someone under the law who, who died and his brother was required by law to take that uh, deceased brother's wife and to take that deceased brother's name on, on behalf of his wife. But I understand right, the children uh, from the brother who took his dead brother's wife would be called after his dead brother, so the dead brother's name would live on. And they pose that question, well, he went through seven wives, uh, and still, or seven brothers died, excuse me, seven brothers died, and which one is going to be uh, uh, the husband in the world to come? And Jesus said, uh, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So the idea of, of this happy home that we may have here being recreated in the world to come, like we're going to take it with us and that will be our place there. Well, no. God grant 
that we will see our loved ones in the world to come. God grant that they will be there. But the arrangement there will be far superior. I remember, and perhaps you remember the same thing, when you were young and presents came your way, you didn't want socks, you didn't want underwear, you wanted wonderful things, things that you could be pleased with. As we get older, I don't know about the underwear, but I do like a nice pair of socks, you know. And you can see the difference as, as time goes on. We, our values change because we, we appreciate things that are, that are better, things that, that are truly more enjoyable and that, that give a, a more of a lasting pleasure. Well, that's just a, a pale comparison, I believe, to what we have here. What we have here is God-given, but it's, it's temporary in nature, but it serves an eternal purpose. And the eternal fulfillment... Obviously, it has to be so, so much better, so far beyond anything that we can even begin to comprehend. We just get a little taste of it here. But the promise is just wonderful, isn't it? And we, we can see that though it's for this world, it's going to be here to the very end. It's not going to let up. In the book of Matthew, in the 24th chapter, uh, verse uh, 37, As in the days of Noah so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those day, the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the, entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Marriage will be here till the very end. It makes me think that when the, when the Lord returns, it isn't going to be a lot of people wondering, you know, will, will, we, will, will we survive? Will there be another day? You get the idea that the world's going to be making plans. You know, just as we came out of this corona thing, even though it's starting to rev up again, you know, it's like people want to get out and get going. They want to make plans. We want to, we want to do things. We want to build. We want to continue. We want to meet publicly and not be sequestered in our homes. People are active. And it's very hard to sit still in a little cubicle and watch a box all day long. It's not good for us. We move until the end, and even the world who doesn't know the Lord will still be sustaining this activity of being married to the very end. What is the framework for marriage? What kind of framework has God placed in it? Well, I have these, these uh, sub-points. One is to alleviate loneliness. We have the happiness and blessings of home that come as a result of that alleviation. We have the population of the world taken into effect, and it... Marriage teaches us about God. Marriage brought Christ into the world. And it is an archetype of God's relationship in the world to come. It, it has so many things in its framework that are beneficial to us. Consider the idea of loneliness, first of all. Genesis 2 and 18. To me, it's, it's significant <clears throat> that before the woman was taken from Adam... God did say it is not good for man to be alone. So he, he considered the, uh, the need for Adam. It wasn't an after-the-fact observation like, you know, God created Adam and then he, he considers it, oh, that's, that's not good. But rather, isn't it written for our benefit that we might understand the value of having another in our life? It's not good for man to be alone. And then uh, following that, Adam was caused to review all of the creation of God. The animals were brought before him, and he named them all at this time. And it tells us that there was not found one comparable or comparable to Adam in all of this. This tells us that, that Adam was evidently being taught something by God here. He was comparing himself with the rest of the creation. Undoubtedly, it, it amplified in his own mind, his need, his, his capacity to appreciate what God was going to do. I'm alone. You could imagine him seeing these, these animals in pairs going by him. Perhaps more. Perhaps they were more abundant than just Noah and the ark. But uh, he could see that there was something missing in his life. And on that basis, God presented him a woman, flesh of his flesh and, and bone of his bones. We also find in the first chapter of Genesis that we are, we are created in the image of God. There's something about us that resonates automatically with God. 
and it and it causes me to wonder. And I realize I'm 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 way out of my depth here because here here we are with with finite minds, finite experience, trying to talk about the eternal one. But we do know this about God: God is love, and it was as was read today. God does not seek it, or love does not seek its own; is not self-seeking. So love. In order for it to be love, goes beyond its own self. God, in order for God to be God, for Him to be love, goes beyond his, Himself. And the reason I, I feel so inadequate to talk about this is, you know, it raises questions. Well, what was God before He created everything and all of that? Well, again, this is a finite mind trying to deal with the eternal. What if in entering into the eternal that we understand what everlasting to everlasting is. What if, what if it is as if it never uh, never had a beginning? I, I don't know. What, what will it be like there? But one thing we do know is that God in His infinite goodness and wisdom saw fit to create, to create beings after Himself. Ultimately, to raise up beings who would be fit to be called His sons and daughters, a part of His own family, the inner circle of all glory and goodness and life. This is what God is doing. Perhaps he's giving a taste of it here in marriage. We get a little bit of the idea. It's not good to be alone. There is fulfillment in having another in our life. In the book of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. The idea of, of a helper is incorporated here. And when, when we think of a helper, we don't think of someone who is, you know, well, go do this, go do that, you know, I'm, I'm the boss, you're, uh, you're the servant, go. But rather, there, there, is, there, there is a hierarchy, of course, and I'm not going to get into that a whole lot, I think that's for other lessons. But the fact remains is that that when you have the idea of a helper, you have the idea of someone who is a co-worker, someone who is alongside of us in life. Um, here we, we have the, the beginning work of, of taking care of his dominion. What was involved in that? Well, we know he took care of the garden, but he had dominion over all the creation on the earth. What would have been involved in that? We can, we can only speculate. But there must have been a heap of responsibility that his helper would be a part of, that they would work together in. And remember, this was at a time when there was no sin. There was no evil intent, no malice, no selfishness before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was eaten. So something very good about this idea of a helper, companion, comparable, someone who is meet or fitting. A joint effort and, we might say, a joint recipient of the good that is to come. There are blessings of, of that goodness, the happiness of home. For me, I oftentimes think of this phrase, hearth and home. You know, I like that because I like a fire. That's one of the things, personally, I enjoy doing in the fall of the year when the temperature starts to get a little bit crispy. I love lighting that fire. I like the feel of it. But what a drag it would be if I was in that living room alone, if it was just me and the fire. Not good. But to have another who is with you, to enjoy the blessings of fall's prosperity. We have the harvest is in and uh, the store is provided. We have everything. Let winter blow. Let it come. You know, things are in motion for us to be comfortable. Not just to survive, but to be comfortable. But to have another with you and to have children there, hearth and home. A blessing, a dear blessing of being alleviated from loneliness. In Proverbs, the 18th chapter, verse 22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This is never to be viewed with cynicism. I trust because of the souls who are here today that most of you have been raised well. Perhaps some of you have not been raised well, but you are here because of the hope of everlasting life. And the thing I want to say is never be cynical about marriage. I have, uh, I have worked with some people that were that way. They would talk poorly of their spouses at work. 
They would be glib about it. One guy said, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, we can just get a divorce, you know. Just like, you know, I'm tired of this magazine, throw it in the trash, move on. This is not, this is not good. We should never be cynical about it. It's something to look forward to. And it's something to, to see uh, its great worth and value. Not only to my happiness as a husband, but to her happiness as my companion, as my wife. And this relationship should be with us all. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9. I really like this verse. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity. For that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. The reason I like that is because it's so plain. It just really gets down to the nub. Vanity, it's a vain life. It's a life that ends in the grave as far as our flesh is concerned, as far as that hearth is concerned, as far as that, that uh, building of sticks that we live in is concerned. It's all going to end. It's vain. But within this, the Lord has given us solace. He's given us a little bit of shelter, something to be glad of, something to, to help the rainy days as we go forward, somebody to be with us in this, somebody who's jointly committed to the good and the value of this, the prosperity of this. Marriage is an archetype of God's love for his people. Now, I don't want to get into this too much because I understand that Friday's lesson is going to be pretty much about that, about Christ and the church. So won't say too much. Uh, one verse I'll read and then we'll move on. This is from Revelation 21 and verse 2. This is the obvious verse. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of, uh, down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So marriage, therefore, has value in the, in the sight of God. It has a great depth in His purpose for our being here. To participate in it, whether we are in the world or we are brother and sister in Christ, we are participating in something that, that God has ordained, that even humanity outside of the body of Christ has a leg up, has some kind of a benefit that does have the potential to reap an eternal benefit if followed through. It is a, it is a blessing for all. It is integral to his plan and to his creation. There are, there are so many benefits to consider with regard to this uh, matter of marriage. There's be, there are benefits to mankind as a whole. There are benefits to our family. And then there are benefits to the church. And I'd like to take a sketch of each one of these. Consider mankind. As we had referenced before, it is honorable in all. Every, every predominant culture in the world has the value of marriage. I tried looking this up on the internet and it's to me it's just kind of a waste of time because oftentimes the things that people write they're so skewed to modern points of view you know everything is about you know uh, uh, I guess you could say flowing relationships and different things like this that have really no bearing on reality. Most cultures regardless of modern thinking most, most cultures do value marriage even in communist regimes where God is not honored Marriage is still valued. We may wonder at the, at the killing of babies in China. We may wonder, we should wonder at the killing of the unborn here in our country. But throughout the world, every culture that has risen at all has this foundation of marriage behind it. it it's a value uh, to all mankind. You know, I, sometimes I'm, I, I'm inclined to think, well, you know, the world, it's a bad place. The other day we were studying in the book of Acts, it's the 27th chapter, and, and we were introduced to a centurion by the name of Julius. And uh, he was charged with taking care to see that Paul was brought to Rome, this prisoner. And uh, he, he let Paul visit with brethren. He uh, didn't always listen to Paul, but finally in the end when it looked like uh, they were going to, to suffer great harm under that great Eurachlodon, uh, he started listening to Paul. Paul said, uh, don't allow these sailors to cut the skiff and, and try to get away or, or lives will be lost. He wouldn't allow it. He listened to Paul. Um, he listened to Paul when it, when it came time for uh, 
or in, I shouldn't say listen to Paul, he, he just wouldn't allow the prisoners to be killed, which would have been probably the custom to do in order to uh, get away from that ship that was floundering. Kill the prisoners and then let's make it to shore. But he didn't allow that to happen. Everyone lived. What was going on here? Well, the thing that, that I couldn't help but think was, here was a man, he was undoubtedly a pagan, he was in the Roman Empire, I don't know what his belief system was, but he had decency. There was honor in this man. There was a thread of something that, that uh, was very, very good. And we see the same thing when they landed on the shores of Malta. The people there were very good to Paul and the others. They treated them well, even before they knew that, that Paul was uh, gifted by God and was able to heal. People there were very kind. So it shows us that, that we do have a world, even though it looks pretty cruel and we get an inundation of cruelty through, through this internet overwash that we're subject to. We see more than we probably should see and we hear more than we probably should hear and it's all focused to certain agendas oftentimes. It's not a good thing. But uh, in reality, there are people in the world that are decent, that are good. The Bible speaks about one of the qualifications of elders, lovers of good men. Uh, I don't think that's just good men in the church. That's recognizing that there are, there are decent people around us. How does that happen? Well, marriage is behind this. Every society has prospered because of marriage and the love of family. Um, in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, uh, it, it, it speaks about the last days and perilous times will come. We are, we've been in the last days for almost 2,000 oh, 2, years now. And yet, um, we see one line in there that's, to me, particularly troubling, where it says, without natural affection. People will come without natural affection. We know this existed in the past, it exists today, but what is this absence of natural affection? Well, it shows us that even, even in humanity at large, People love their children. People love their spouses. There are, there are those that do this. We know that there's all kinds of other uh, depravities that go on in the world, but there are people who do love. We see in our time this thing is, is rapidly fading. Uh, I will make a commentary on, on the abortion problem here in our society. It, it speaks of a, a deep absence of natural affection on the part of the, of the potential mother, and on the part of the lazy dad, the one that won't take care of responsibility and won't take care of that baby and that mother. No affection there. It's just grubbing for what we want. I'm, I'm sorry to have to say that in my own way. I know you all are, have different opinions. All right, getting away from that stuff. It's not natural. It's not natural even to an unbelieving world. It's not natural to the survival of humanity. But marriage, it is natural. It is for this world and for the good of this world. It's involved in nation building. A little passage from Psalm 127, 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. This was when it's in a time when people were, they were looking forward to progress, to prosperity, to being a multitude who were able to make their way in safety and security in the world. It still exists with it. We, we're probably a little bit more numb to it because we live in the middle of a vast society and so we're not really thinking about survival as, as dearly as people did in time past. But this, this is what comes from marriage. Acts 17, 26 through 27. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. Marriage is not mentioned here, but it is the foundation from which this passage exists. Nations do not exist without marriage. Societies do not stand without marriage. There are no boundaries, there are no times of habitation without marriage. Therefore, there is no capacity to seek after God if haply we might find Him. 
if it were not for marriage. As far as the family is concerned, marriage provides a secure foundation. Children know where they came from. They know who their parents are. They know that they belong. How sad it is. In, in our own neighborhood, we have, we have had children. We have had children of high school age with rickets, living on potato chips. Who knows where mother's at and, and dad is drunk and stoned out of his mind. And this is not uncommon, unfortunately. I, I, hope, it, I hope it will soon pass and no longer be a blight that it is. But it, it, is, it is happening in, in a terrible way. I think of, uh, of Moses and how Moses was raised. This passage from Hebrews, the 11th chapter, beginning in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer uh, affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What was going on here? <clears throat> well, we see that, that Moses had a family behind him. There was a mother and father I assume that, that Jochebed was probably the, the primary source of information because she was the privileged one to go into Pharaoh's daughter and, taking, and to take care of, of feeding Moses when he was little. But he came to know who he was. He knew who God was. He knew who his people was. He knew where he belonged. And I believe that the, the foundation for this was not by inspiration, God visiting him and telling them that he's a prophet, but rather the beginning had to be with his mother and perhaps with his father. Information was given. He knew who he was. He knew his roots. He knew God. This is very vital for us as a people. We need to know who we are. Now in being born again, the idea of being born again is yes, no longer shall we be taught who we are by our family. We, we learn from God who we need to be. And that's a different subject altogether. But it begins with being born here and knowing who we are. Um, we have a statement in the uh, book of Genesis with regard to the, the value of... And I know that we're getting off into parenting here and being father and mother... But it's, it's the thing that's produced by marriage, so I don't want to waste this thing. Here in Genesis 18, uh, beginning in verse 17, this was at the uh, uh, beginning of uh, the Lord's plan to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he's showing his self-deliberation concerning Abraham, and I believe this is for our benefit. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Now take notice of this 19th verse. I have known him, Genesis 18, verse 19. I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So much for the drone husband. Here we have a man who taught his children about life. He saw the value of giving them a perspective in life. Where are our children going to get their worldview that's going to be good unless they have a father and mother, a husband and wife who love each other? From there, we can teach them about life. We can teach them to see and to understand the world from a sound perspective, from a godly perspective. This comes from a godly marriage. Of course, I'm speaking to the, to the faithful here, or to those that love the Lord. But even in the world, the beginning of that can still exist. Something sound, something good can be even in the world to make it possible for people to spring forward. Consider this little side note about, about men. You know, in... Uh, in the book of 2 Peter and the third chapter where it says, add to your faith virtue, that word comes from a term which essentially means manliness. You know, in our time, this is sort of ridiculed, like, you know, it's big guns, it's beer, you know, it's a hairy chest and a ball cap, it's spitting tobacco, you know, just kind of this gob of flesh going around doing things. Um, don't get me wrong, I don't have anything against... Uh, shooting a gun. 
But, uh, but by the same token, we see that there's a, a depth of manliness, for example, in Abraham. He saw the higher things of life. Men can do that. We can see the higher things, the things that are of, of high value. We can see those things as being proper to inculcate in the minds of our children. I'm not talking about uh, propaganda here. I'm talking about teaching them and helping them to understand and providing an example of, I guess you could say, of prospering because of that point of view. Not prospering monetarily, but prospering in a sense of peace and well-being, a, pro a prosperity that comes from enjoying life with your spouse, enjoying the good of life, there's something that men can communicate and should communicate. I've, I've heard it said, not, not among our circle of believers, but external to this, it's kind of like the, the men or the drones are sitting in the congregation and they just buzz, you know, they don't do really anything. Uh, their wives are the ones that are more active and, and uh, uh, involved in, in the spiritual matters. And that's, that's just a wreck. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's just ignorance and stupidity. It's just not the way men are made to be. It's just men being lazy and forgetting who they are and what God has given them to do. Now the final thing before we, we take our break, we've got a few minutes, and I do want to have time for, for conversation on this. Don't get me wrong, I'm just trying to get all this stuff out and then hopefully we can, we can have some discussion. But the final thing I'd like to close before our break is that concerning the, the value of marriage for the church. Marriage provides the clay from which the new man is formed. There would be nobody coming to Christ if we did not have marriage in this world. The world is not comprised of illegitimacy. Yes, there are illegitimate children. There are people who have poor backgrounds. And God bless them if they will just but come and give their life to the Lord. And maybe some of you have this kind of background. Maybe some of you, as I have, have come from broken homes and have found good in the Lord. But never be disparaging about the value of what marriage can bring. I've heard it often said that there is an advantage to giving your life to Christ if you come from the world because you can see it and appreciate it more. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe. But I sure wouldn't ha want anybody to go through the kind of sorrows and nonsense that I went through living like a blind, dumb ox before coming to the Lord. I've seen many beautiful young men and women being raised by godly father and mother who don't have to go through all of that and they can still come and know the Lord and, uh, and rejoice in Him without hypocrisy or without just, well, I'm a part of a big happy club here, but because they do know Jesus. Um, I'd like to start off with 1 Timothy chapter 2, 13 through 15. Here it says, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. That's an interesting line. Saved in childbearing. You mean you've got to have children? Well, it does show us the primary purpose for you sisters in Christ. Most of us will be married. Most of you will be married. If there are any uh, younger ones who are not married, most of us do get married. And what is the essential fulfillment within that marriage for our sisters in Christ? She shall be saved in childbearing. Now, is that an absolute? It can't be an absolute. Number one, not all people can have children. It's not, it's not possible in some marriages. Of course, that's not an absolute. But it is generally true. It is true in the main. The fruit of the womb is a beautiful thing that comes from marriage. And it's a blessing from God. Why does it say that she will be saved? Well, what better purpose is there than to show the love of God to an infant, to a one-year-old, a two-year-old, and they're shaping their lives, to show the good of God, not only as a mother, but as a sister in Christ? There's a lot of power in that. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, uh, beginning in verse 12, Here it says, to the rest, not I, or not the Lord, uh, uh, to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. <clears throat> and a woman who has a husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her, uh, let her not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Sanctification all around. Why? Because there is someone in that family who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how does that sanctify? Does that mean the unbelieving is saved? That the children are automatically saved? No. But it does mean that for the unbelieving spouse, there is an advantage. And it does mean for those children, there is an advantage. There is a perspective there, a sound perspective, a godly perspective within that marriage that provides something useful for the other, even if the other does not believe or the children have not yet come to obey the gospel. Our children, if they obey the gospel in truth, they don't do it because we want them to. They do it because they see the example and they come to terms with the Lord themselves and they know the Lord for themselves and they give their lives to Him. But where does that come from? Now are your children holy? It comes from marriage, doesn't it? In Romans, the 8th chapter, uh, 16 and 17, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. I stuck this under the heading of the, the value of for the church, and the reason I did this is because we think of the union that we have with Christ, and the Bible oftentimes stylizes this as a marriage, which we'll get into later this week. But within that, that term joint heirs, can you identify as a husband and a wife? Can you identify with the idea of being joint heirs? This is really easy, isn't it? Because in your love, in your family, in your marriage, you learn to see things together. You grow together. You become one together, not just in flesh, but in thinking, in your, your, your value system becomes ever wholly intertwined. And it gives us a picture of what it's like to be with the Lord. But here, it's good in the house of God to recognize that this is what we have. How do we see that? We see it because of what we understand in marriage. Uh, I was going to talk about the important qualification for elders and deacons, but uh, we'll save that for later. Break time.